0: conspiracy show with richard sarin from zuma radio am 740
1: welcome to the audio imaginarium come on in weary traveler hang your cloak on a peg grab a stool and come warm yourself by the fire there are stories to be told and you are among friends The host of Conspiracy Cafe, a very popular podcast, George Freund, Uh, will be here momentarily with a look ahead of what could be in store for 2018 on the conspiracy front. We'll talk about artificial intelligence and the continuing struggle between globalists and the nation state, Uh, North Korea, the protests in Iran, the information war, and uh, more, so much more. Uh, Second hour, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be along to talk curses, the campaigner, Kennedy family curse, the Hope Diamond curse, uh, the curse of the uh, James Dean's death car, which he nicknamed the Little Bastard. A few programming notes: no live YouTube stream tonight. Uh, that returns next week. Ryan and Albert are on, uh, are off this week. And uh, just a reminder: my new podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, has been up and running now since early December. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, TuneIn, or you can just go to the website, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Well, 2017 made me dizzy, quite frankly. How about you? Mostly in a good way. 2017 was the year the nation state started to fight back in earnest against the globalists, both in the U.S. and in some parts of Europe. Some disturbing trends as well, particularly in terms of the mainstream media and the information war and the clamping down on free speech, particularly at colleges and universities. So what lies ahead? George Freund is a fiercely independent investigator and researcher and blogger. He's also a, and the creator, host, producer of the award-winning podcast, Conspiracy Cafe. George Freund, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Oh, very well, Richard, as always. We were debating off-air whether it's too late now, here we are, January 14th, to be wishing people a happy new year. But you said no, it's whenever the happiness arrives, so...
2: Exactly sometimes you know if it comes by carrier pigeon or something it could be slightly delayed
1: <laughs> Well, this is our first uh, chance to chat in uh, 2018 so a happy new year nonetheless. Uh, how would you characterize just we're going to focus mainly on the year ahead 2018 uh, but just uh, give me your your a thumbnail sketch your overall thoughts of, of 2017.
2: Well, overall, 2017, I think, was the start of uh, a major, major conflict between the globalists and the non-globalists on the international world stage, and uh, this battle for dominion over the planet Earth, the people, the resources, the finances. And uh, it's coming down to a head because we've never had any competition before. It was always uh, a fixed game. And, uh, you know, no matter where we went or what we did, the cards were marked, the dealer was crooked, and uh, we always lost. But now we have a new uh, chef, in the white house and he's making some interesting broth from time to time that really puts these people on the run and uh, it's going to be a, a it's going to be a competition he's quite the competitor overall president trump and i think we're going to see him go to mm, perhaps extremes isn't the best word but uh, things that uh, are going to really rock the house
1: down all right so 2018 you have described uh something called a coming world information war. So we're not talking necessarily World War 3, you call it World Information War number 1. Explain.
2: Well, Marshall McLuhan uh coined the uh, idea a long time ago where he said, you know, the World War 3 will be a guerrilla information war with no division between military and civilian participation. And in all these years, Uh, we've seen a manifestation of a power elite, a thought control mechanism in mainstream media that just completely sets the standard on what people think and believe. And unless they get their guidelines from the mighty Oracle of the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN, they just have no ability to form a thought or an opinion unless it's backed up by uh, this type of media cartel. And uh, there's a lot of us that realize we're being taken advantage of, and people are, you know, just basically throwing humanity under the bus and carrying off with the destiny of the planet Earth with us, you know, not even understanding what the dust from the wheels that take off are about. But a lot of us are gathering that information, and we've become the civilian participation that McLuhan talked about, that we're saying that, hey... Something's wrong here. Uh, You know, I'm being sold the the proverbial taxi, uh, you know, the yellow primer paint, and someone's telling me it's a good used car, and I figured it out. So now we have weapons that we can fight back with, like people will blog, they'll go on YouTube and make a a, a thing of it, and uh, alternative news and opinion will get out, and it's scaring the power elite because people are making a decision, a choice, a marketplace decision to say, okay, I've heard this, and I've heard that, and I compared it, and uh, tested it, and one leaves a bitter, bad taste in my mouth, and I spit it out, and the other one is succulent juices from heaven or something like that, that this is the truth, and it's taking me in the right direction. It's exposing evil cronies who control, uh, whether it's the political spectrum or the newsroom or the business world, and we're seeing them for what they are. We're seeing that the emperor has no clothes, and now we're saying, okay, I'm subject to the law, that's supposed to be a universal thing in the United States, that we're all subject to the law. Why are not these elites subject to the law when it comes out that maybe there's been some graft, some corruption, or stories of abuses, whether they be sexual abuse or just taking advantage of people in the marketplace and basically enslaving them to minimum wage jobs? Will they run off with the treasures? I think people have had enough, and they're saying, we're going to make a difference. And that's the important thing that they really have no control over. They can try to pass laws to restrict thought or opinion, and they can eulogize something called fake news, but uh, the truth will rise to the surface in any type of open and free debate, and that's why they restrict open and free debate, because if we present our cards on the table face-up, And uh, openly and sincerely, even if maybe not to the best quality of, like, the guy who wears the suit who's on the evening news, but we get the truth out there, people can recognize the difference, accept it, and that will mollify them and change the opinion cartel and hopefully bring world peace and a a civil government that's of, by, and for the people.
1: Well, these news readers uh, almost are the new priests Uh, they've been placed on such a pedestal uh, for so many years, but I think 2017 in part was the year many of them were defrocked, but but do you see 2018 perhaps as the year that some of these news gathering services whether it's what President Trump calls the, the failed New York Times or the Washington Post do you think we could actually lose some of these I mean there's the some of them have failed business models the newspaper industry is struggling as we know but aside from that just in terms of a credibility factor do you think that we could see a CNN or an MSNBC or a New York Times actually go by the wayside if not this year then very soon
2: yes and we can see that because once the people decide that they're going to change the channel. That's something I've always said since I was even doing shows at that channel. You have the power in your hand. You change the dial, the tuner, you know, the, the, you change your information on an online site or something like that. You have the power to control destiny by just changing the channel. And once you start realizing you're getting poison water, why would you go back to a well that gives you poison water? Climb the mountain. Find the fresh spring. With the clear, colorless, beautiful water, taste it. You can't go back to the polluted, garbage stuff anymore. And uh, there's nothing they can do to lure you back, except maybe pay you to watch it, but they couldn't even pay me to watch it. And uh, unfortunately, there is a hardcore uh, number of people that are just so addicted to this. It's almost like a, a drug that they cannot form free, independent thoughts. And, uh, you know, sometimes I laugh and snicker at them at work because, you know, there'll be the odd time maybe I don't change my nameplate on my desk or something like that, and someone will walk by and see another name, and they're confused, like, you know, aren't you George? And it's like, look, you don't know me after all these years? <laughs> so so I look at this as like a test of, of your capacity here that you you see what the name says, what's written there, and you have to accept what's printed before you, even though your eyes show you there's another person there. And you know who that person is, and you know what the person is about, but you still can't make that quantum leap to accept that I'm me. Just like without this uh, mantra of news, you can have all sorts of evidence to the contrary, but unless you see it in print in the source that you trust, you'll not accept it, and you'll laugh and snicker. But we put these things to logic tests, which is something they don't train young people for anymore, to say, okay, I believe you. I want to believe you. This is your story. But I'm going to test it. I'm going to test it to the laws, maybe, of physics or science, or to the credibility of maybe witnesses who are obscure and brushed off the table to say, well, they presented evidence. I have eyewitness evidence, ear witness evidence, perhaps video or audio recordings that don't jive with your story. So if we're in a court of law and I bring things like this up, well, of course, the accused will be acquitted. Well, in this media trial, the trial of of we the people listening to all this stuff, we found all sorts of holes in your case. And in American law, they have something that's very, very beautiful called the fruit of the poison tree. So once you find one piece of fruit that's poison, you pretty much write off the whole tree and all the fruit is being poisoned, which is a very reasonable thing to do under the circumstances.
1: We're heading into a a break here in a moment, uh, in a a few minutes here, George. We have about three... Sorry. We're heading into a break in about three minutes here, George. Uh, but before we do, let's just get this conversation started, and we can pick it up on the other side. And that is, you, you talk about how these information networks, the news gathering services, are fo- finally going to be exposed as part of the military-industrial complex. How, how is that going to happen? And, and I mean, is there going to be a tipping point? Is there one, in, one news gathering outlet in particular that you think will be exposed?
2: Well, that's coming out now with things like QAnon, WikiLeaks, are, are exposing the fact. And, you know, if this is just a historical record, is we've always had this Operation Mockingbird style. They got yes. caught in the Nixon years, and we're supposed to think they found the Lord, and they're all on their knees begging for forgiveness from God, and everything's going to be okay. Well, that's a very naive approach, to think, okay, they let the dust settle, they look to see if anybody's looking anymore, and then they go back to their dirty tricks, and they're doing it exponentially greater than, than they did back in the Nixon years to, to do this sort of thing. And it, it's just come out as common knowledge, but now with alternative media and alternative thought forums, things that people were unaware of, the fact that like CNN had an intelligence office in the newsroom just like you would probably have in the old Soviet Union where, you know, there's a, a Boris Bedanov in the back just to bonk you on the head and say, <laughs> you can't go there, right. Natasha, take him out, and uh, and he's gone. And then uh, I, I know when I worked in a global building before, I would talk to some of the 6 o'clock uh, news hounds, and, uh, you know, I'd say, if I ever even dared to say some of the things you say, you know, the hook comes out, you know, that's it, I'm gone never heard of again, they they would, you know, airbrush you out of history. And uh, that's a sad state of affairs in a country that we're supposed to have belief in that, you know, we're free and we have free speech and we can put uh, things on the public record. If it's true, it'll float. And if it's wrong or if it's, you know, fake, I guess, for lack of a better word, it will fall off and sync. And that's
1: the end of it. But we have to say it. Indeed, we do. All right, George, we'll, uh, we'll step away momentarily. George Freund is uh, the host of a wildly uh, popular, award-winning podcast, Conspiracy uh, Cafe, conspiracy-cafe.com. Uh, you can also read his, uh, his blogs there as well. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about uh, what lies ahead in 2018, including how the sources of funding will either be exposed or killed. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Back with
0: more in a moment. Don't go away. Do You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. To get the truth... You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio.
1: We are back with George Freund. George, uh, tell us a little bit, of, before we get uh, more into uh, what lies ahead in 2018, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, a Conspiracy Cafe. Uh, how do we listen to it? How do we subscribe and so forth?
2: Well, you just have to go online and uh, put in the website address or if you forget it or whatever, you can just punch in my name and Google me and any place I've ever come up before will be available to you. In old forums, new forums. I'm even surprised myself sometimes if I because I restore old shows I did at that channel and re- put them back online since they had a little hiatus for a while. And I even scare myself sometimes for some of the things I said or found out <laughs> in the past. I'm <laughs> like, my God, I forgot all about that. And, you know, one story that uh, you know comes to mind was the Murdoch Empire blackmailing people in public life. To say, well, if you want good stories about your political career or your business uh, regimen, you know, you've got to pay the piper. And if you don't, well, then we'll rub your nose in the dirt. And then I look at what's going on today in the world where so many people are being accused of this and that and this and that. And to a great extent they're just being accused nothing's gone to trial there hasn't been evidence presented by both sides know uh, we, we haven't seen any evidence and uh, you know people's reputations are just destroyed completely without the benefit of, uh, of, of a trial
1: well that's the other that's a, a huge story obviously of 2017 and we can maybe talk about whether that trend will continue this year and that is the weaponization of sex. Uh, now obviously, there are some serious problems going on in places like Hollywood, in Washington. It is a real a problem. It does exist, but uh, it is also being politicized. And as you say, careers are being destroyed on um, on mere uh, hearsay. Uh, and, and now, because you know there's blood in the water, uh, you know, I think both sides are guilty. Of this I say, both the left, the right, however you want to characterize them, are using sexual harassment, sexual harassment claims, as a way of destroying careers.
2: Exactly, and uh, without benefit of uh, of something going through a court system, a trial process, an arbitration process, to just just on the rumor. You know, it's it's almost like lynch mob justice, or you know somebody yelling heretic, uh, you know, or witch, I guess he's even better, he's a witch, burn him! And, uh, and we're resorting, or going to the lowest common denominator of human form, and using, uh, you know, basically all the beautiful advantages of a technological society we have to, to throw the rope over a tree branch or carry someone away. And, uh, you know, not saying that there probably aren't a lot of scandals like that that have been buried over the past, but why now all of a sudden is a lot of this coming to light? Uh, They really went after, you know, this Judge Roy Moore when he was running for the Senate. And, uh, you know, just to tear him apart for all kinds of things that he may have done when he was younger. And, you know, uh, well, let's just pretty much take anybody. I'm sure anybody alive probably did a few things they're not so proud of today, maybe in their mature years when they were a teenager or a young adult. And uh, they grew out of that. It was like a stage or a phase or something like that. So to say, 50 years later, that we're going to hold you to this uh, uh, model, a pretend model of what we think uh, you should be, is uh, is rather ludicrous. Because I think if we went back through anybody's past, we'd find that, you know, it's not just not necessarily like a skeleton, but, you know, you had a few uh, guffaws here or there that you might not be too proud of.
1: Well, I'm not here to defend Roy Moore and, and some of the accusations, uh, you know, if true uh, absolutely you know evil but a lot of the accusations were about him a man in his 30s dating teenagers and how p- quickly people forget Jerry Seinfeld I was a big fan of Jerry Seinfeld back in the 90s Jerry Seinfeld dated was dating a 17 year old when he was almost 40 and no one batted an eye just saying you know the Well how about
2: Yeah the father of a prime minister we have here in this country marrying a woman who was, you know, probably daughter's age, and siring a man who's our prime minister. Right, right. You know, so uh, as long as you're of age of consent, I don't see that big a deal about two consensual adults getting involved in something or aspersions being cast about it. You know, some girlfriends I've had, would you could call them cradle robbers because, you know, they were significantly older than I was. But that doesn't make them a pervert or anything like that it's just you know we're consenting adults. I got enough gray hair to uh, do a Grecian formula commercial or something like that, and uh, they just happen to be older. But you know, if you have feelings for someone, you love someone, or this or that, I really don't look at that as uh, you know that terrible a thing.
1: So. Well, apparently, if you're if you're the right, if you're the wrong political stripe, then it becomes an issue. I, I do. Uh, let me remind uh, listeners that once again: George Freund is with us, the host of Conspiracy Cafe. Again, it's conspiracy-cafe.com. Uh, and how, long, how often do uh, episodes drop and when, when when are they?
2: Well, I tried to do them on a weekly basis. I was really under the weather before uh, Christmas. I picked up whatever plague was going around, and uh, I was having some other problems, so I took a bit of a break uh, from things. You know, I post things and uh, keep people entertained, but uh, I haven't been recording, uh, you know, for the last couple of weeks just until I get everything back online uh, myself, because there's no sense burning myself out like I've done before. Right. So, uh, you know, I took a a break like everybody else. You're entitled. uh, And I'll start again. Well, I've been doing it for like over 20 years. And, uh, you know, just without fail almost to keep on uh, top of things. One of the other things, too, you know, while we were just peeking about uh, Roy Moore, because I just wanted to get an update, but the accuser for him, uh, Tina Johnson, you know, someone set her house on fire and burned her out. Oh, dear. And this isn't, uh, you know, the only person. that is This is, this is, seems to be like things are getting physical as well. There was a fire at Hillary Clinton's house. Maybe her witch's pot spilled over or something like that. Another uh,
1: server to be destroyed. Another
2: perhaps? server, yeah. They can't use a hammer anymore. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to blowtorch it. But <laughs> in, in a weak moment, Get out of the way, Bill! I'm going to burn this sucker. Whoops, the house is on fire. But, uh, you know, these things are, uh, have to be considered that uh, it, it's getting rough out there, that people are getting angry. And part of the reason is, I, I had a saying a long time ago, if we can't talk it out, then in a lot of ways we condemn ourselves to fight it out. And that's why we believe in free speech, so that we can talk it out and never have to fight it out. And uh, But if we muzzle everyone, then sooner or later things can go bad and turn into fisticuffs or even worse.
1: Right. Without that safety valve Without of free speech, valve. then things can get violent. And, and obviously that was a, a huge trend in 2017, stifling of, of uh, mainly conservative uh, speech on university campuses. Um, what, do you see that changing at all in 2018?
2: Oh, no, no, no. I see that being heated up uh, even more. It's like the only card they have to play. And even though it's a it's a losing hand, uh, they still keep at it for uh, some strange reason. Why? It's, it's hard to understand. But, uh, you know, a famous black man a long time ago, Frederick Douglass, said, to suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer as well as those of the speaker. Because, sometimes we're hard trenched into a belief system or an idea and then we find out later it's not so good (laughs) or you know we didn't count all the the variables, and we made a mistake, or we erred. And the only reason we can find that out sometimes is like we put something to a stress test. If I invent something that flies, or uh, you know, does some kind of uh, you know work that could be dangerous to humans, or something, we'd want it stress tested just to make sure we haven't messed up, especially the economy or the banking system, so that we can find a mistake. But if we don't allow people to speak or 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 to point out flaws, uh, even though we may find them uh, repulsive. Uh, you know, I've known lots of people you could call Holocaust deniers. That's a big thing. There's a Canadian Green Party candidate in jail in Germany over something like that. Well, my grandfather told me his sisters were killed in the Holocaust, and I've met people like that. I don't take offense to it. Just go, okay, well, you know, it's your right to be free to believe what you want to believe, but I was told something different, and I tend to believe something different. But that you know, yeah, as
1: odious as it is, I I, I agree. On uh, Holocaust denial is right up there as the most you know odious of all expressions uh, of free speech. Um, I mean, I'm 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 of like mind. I think. Well, I uh, say,
2: even if you killed just one, it was one too many. That's right. And uh, you know, like say, I wasn't born then. I didn't know. I just have to take the words of uh, my grandfather about what happened in the war and who paid what price and how. And uh, I work with a colleague whose father was in one of those camps, a slave labor camp, and used for medical experiments. So, you know, we know full well what happened. But uh, Well, that's
1: just it. We don't just have to take people's words for it. I mean, it's it, it, the evidence is, you know, it's there's so clear. much evidence that it happens. So but, that's uh, why it's so odious when these people come out and, and say that it didn't.
2: So that's what makes them look like a fool. If you're an idiot and you go on a public uh, yeah. forum Let and them expose say something themselves. that can't back yourself up, what do you do? You fall on your butt. That's Everybody right. Them expose themselves. Away.
1: That's right. Uh, I want to talk about. Uh, we, we mentioned before the break, you have, you, you're predicting uh, the sources of funding of being ex- either exposed or killed. First of all, what funding are we t- talking about?
2: Well, they're going after all sorts of funding. They're going after funding for, uh, it's like a, an economic war, too. And it's not just, uh, you know, for people who provide news. Like they, YouTube goes after bloggers where they changed some of the formulas and how people would get paid out for how many views you had on a video. Uh, You know, I've had incidents where PayPal came after me and said, well, you know, we're not going to let you use PayPal on your website to take donations or anything like that in an attempt to shut you up or put you down. People have been deprived of employment, uh, all sorts of things where they're waging economic warfare to say, well, you know, we're going to label you with something and for that uh, deprive you of an income or whatever the lowest common. So you're talking
1: about you're talking about revenue through social media, whether that it's YouTube or, thing. and
2: okay. it can be advertising for a big uh, conglomerate station, where you know a, a couple of big uh, advertisers can come up, and they have in the Trump uh, issues and the left-right paradigm in the states to say we're going to pull our advertising, and uh, you know and basically uh, kick whatever media in the teeth. And, uh, you know, I find that uh, is abhorrent, really, because the uh, bottom line is uh, to live in a free and open society, free speech has to be valuable. When I was a child, we would say, you know, that you would fight for someone else's opinion or idea even if you didn't agree with it, because the right to that free speech is so important. But that uh, is sort of a dictum that's falling off the plate now, and no one really cares that you can have free speech as long as you tout the rhetoric of the hierarchy or the Politburo that is in vote. If for countries as well. Like we look at Venezuela, they're, they're uh, of different opinions about how things should go in the world, and it appears economic warfare is being waged against them. The Bolivar is almost, well, it is. It's well below toilet paper for value, and uh, they've got like 4,000% inflation, and it might even be 5,000% by the time uh, the show gets on the air. Uh, it's, it's just abhorrent, really, that people are made to suffer over uh, issues like that. Like if I had uh, a wish, I wish I had all the uh, Bitcoins in the world and I'd probably do something weird like buy bolivars to throw all the short sellers out of out of whack and let uh, let the country try to reestablish itself or just give it to them to say, okay, here, pay off your debts.
1: Yeah, but and... don't, in large measure, don't you think the socialist regime has done it to, they've done it to themselves? Oh, by and large. This like... is socialism at work. This is the, the, the ugly truth of socialism. I wish all the, the people People that the, the young millennials that were recently polled, I'm not sure if it was Pew Research, something like 70% of millennials, at least in the United States, say they'd like to live in a socialist country. Well, here here's a one-way ticket to uh, Venezuela. Go knock yourself out. Well, by and large, where
2: countries really fail is because you have corruption in government. And uh, in the socialist country, the fascist country, even the capitalist country, you're going to have leaders that loot the treasury, that should almost be an Olympic sport, and take the money from the people and uh, take it off to various little locales where you can have these tax haven accounts and uh... some of the poorest countries in the world even though you might not think of some of the african nations as being socialist but they have a dictatorial government that just loot the country overwhelmingly and uh... you know you look at how long mugabe was in power and, you know, how much effort it took to get him out. And, uh, you know, hopefully they have a leader coming in now that's going to be sympathetic to the cause of the people, or, you know, maybe they'll just be changing the
1: payee on some of these accounts. Okay, right, I've got to jump in, uh, George. We're going to take a time out. Listen, when we come back, let's switch gears. Let's talk about transhumanism and artificial intelligence. George Freund, the host of Conspiracy Cafe, right here on The Conspiracy Show.
0: Don't go away. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Sand from Zoomer Radio. George Freud is back with us, and again,
1: the podcast is available at conspiracy-cafe.com. I'm, I imagine they can also subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher Radio and so forth. Correct.
2: Oh uh, no, I don't bother with that. Oh, you don't? Okay. No, no, no. I'm a very uh, low-tech, uh, easy-going kind of guy. By and large, you just come in online, and uh, you can download the thing from my media player. I use Vimeo as opposed to YouTube because they're free speech supportive and uh, don't have the ominous Google cloud behind them.
1: All right. I want to talk about, let's talk about merging man and machine. And um, y- you believe, and I agree with you, I don't think there's, I think the genie's out of the bottle. I think we are in a mad rush towards transhumanism. Where Where do you think it's going in 2018 specifically?
2: Well, they've already started, and they're going to go further, and they're developing an artificial intelligence god. And uh, there's even a church been uh, established for this, and you can't have a better understanding of what the beast is. The church is called the Way of the Future. It was established in 2015, and a lot of the Silicon Valley gurus are big on this, people who have worked for, you know, Google, and one of the big chaps, uh, you know, was involved in Uber self-driving cars. Anthony Lewandowski founded uh, this religion, and they look at artificial intelligence as it's going to mass manifest itself to be the godhead of the future. And when we look at the fact that all our devices, all Everything has chips in them now. Like if I want to, you know, you can buy a new fridge and there's, you know, chips and cameras in there to go online so you can look in your fridge to see what's in there, your hydrometers, uh, phones, whatever device you have, everything's chipped and controlled ultimately by a beast.
1: The Internet of everything. The Internet
2: of everything. uh, The last thing I need, you know, I love to argue with this out with atheists and stuff like that because they don't believe in the real God, but they're quite prepared to have an artificially created God that's going to be a machine and a machine that, you know, who knows what. Like, we shut down the two computers that invented their own language and were talking to each other. Yes, uh, I read
1: about that. That That was freaky
2: like where are they going to go what are they going to do so when they look at the thing that's called the singularity project where they want to develop an artificial life form to be a life form a man-created life form that's going to be superior to human beings and will basically be handed by these types of people the keys to the store to say that you're going to control humanity run the world What are they going to say? What are they going to do? And what if they say something that's completely contradictory to human life, to say, okay, there's 500 million too many in this place. Good night. And uh, we have a new Holocaust. This is a god, according to these people, so they would feel that this entity has the ability or the right to do that.
1: Oh, but George, it's all going to be, all this is preventable. It'll all be included in the algorithm.
2: (laughs) But these machines are writing their own algorithms, <laughs> Yes. and uh, when they do that, you know, where do we go, what do we do, what do we say? I, I look at uh, the Borg on Star Trek as where this goes, is that you have this uh, computer entity that controls a humanoid-type being that's mixed with a computer, uh, you know, and doesn't necessarily have to look as ugly as the Borg do, but that you're completely controlled and dominated as a collective. And you see a lot of the things where they're headed in politics, whether it be the Green Movement or, you know, the climate change people or something, where the collective idea, the hive mind, is very, very popular with them. And will it be with their inventions? And will these inventions ultimately try to enslave us, control us? You definitely won't have the ability to move or to get around like you had expected in the past because they may just say, you know, for whatever reason to pretend that we're not going to create CO2 gas, that we shut down the ability to move or cut off heat or turn off air conditioning, that we could make life very, very inhospitable for a living, breathing being, where the machines probably wouldn't matter if they had some of the necessities of life turned off. And uh, this this is a, a very, very dangerous road to go down. And they seem to be just throwing off the emergency brake <laughs> and sliding down this big cliff at full speed and, and wanting to go faster and faster and faster into something. They really don't know what it is there at the end when they hit it. And uh, once we get there... Well, of course, we probably could never go back. Mr. Putin said very, very clearly that he believes this invention of artificial intelligence, like super soldiers, is probably more dangerous than nuclear weapons, and he ought to know because he's probably in charge of building their own weapons. Right. Yes, and uh, so even he's saying, you know, it scares me.
1: It scares me, too. George, we got to take a timeout. We'll come back, and uh, we'll talk geopolitics. Speaking of uh, Russia, we'll talk Ukraine, Iran, Europe, uh, and more. George Freund on Conspiracy Cafe right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us.
0: This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back
1: with George Freund. Let me spell the last name. It's capital F-R-E-U-N-D, Freund. And uh, if you Google George Freund, you can uh, you can come across his uh, his blog and his podcast, or you can go to conspiracy cafecom Let's uh, turn to geopolitics, uh, George. Um, Iran. Now we um, we've been witnessing uh, some protests there that I, the mainstream media has been very very uh, quiet, um, not interested in discussing that. And I guess that's because it doesn't fit into the uh, the narrative. Uh, this. You know, Iran nuclear deal was supposed to bring some economic relief to the country, but that's really what a lot of those protests are about. Um, People are sick and tired of uh, the mullahs over there spending uh, billions on funding terrorism and so forth. Uh, And also the Iran nuclear deal, the mullahs were supposed to be, you know, these are people now that we can negotiate with and they're reasonable people, but uh, obviously uh, much of Iran's uh, 80 million souls don't see it that way.
2: Well, Iran is a very oppressive police state. And whether we have a political police state or a religious police state, if we don't have freedom of... Anything, You know, it's a tyrannical regime. And to, to think that, uh, yes, if you want to follow the faith the way uh, many of the mullahs follow the faith, that's your right and privilege. And if you decide you want to be a detractor from that, well, that's your right and privilege, too. And uh, you should be allowed to do that. And that's prohibited. So because that's prohibited, it makes a very onerous uh, lifestyle. To, to exist under and many people I know that come from Iran uh, you know have a tough time uh, dealing with some of these things and uh, we're seeing a color revolution there the only thing is that because it's not being televised uh, to the extent that previous ones have been televised, like the Ukrainian one, perhaps, as an example, obviously tells us it's probably not a George Soros operation. It may be a CIA intelligence agency operation, but it it, it isn't uh, the George Soros kind. So that's why it's not being uh, hyped as much. And probably that's a a major reason why it has failed, because you didn't have that overwhelming buildup to take it
1: uh, over the top. Well, this is one, you know, (laughs) quite frankly, CIA or not, this is one I could get behind and would support uh, I, I would love to see uh, Iran break free of this, this is a horrible uh, theocracy and they do they, spread, they do spread terrorism uh, and, and I, I think if the Mullahs were to, to, uh, to flee uh, or if that re- regime were to ever crumble uh, I, the, the, the transformation in the Middle East I think would be incredible and, yes. and, and, and positive, a positive, a hugely positive development.
2: But uh, that power vacuum could easily be taken over by, you know, friendly or unfriendly neighbors, whether Russia would f- uh, move in because they're so close, or the Saudis might uh, try to fill the vacuum. It might even be the Saudis that are behind this uh, attempted at color revolution, because they don't see eye-to-eye on things, and in many uh, stages, like the Yemen, Yemen war, uh, they're Protagonists and they're fighting amongst each other with uh, proxy armies and direct armies for the Saudis. That uh, we could see something coming to pass, like these missiles that were fired by the Houthi rebels were most likely supplied and uh, built by the Iranians. And uh, one almost came down on the capital, uh, that, and it was intercepted by American technology that the Saudis had. But if that missile had landed, we could have been in a situation where we have open warfare between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, coming up very, very quickly. And uh, so they're high on the list for being uh, someone to try to get a regime change going in Iran as the soft and easy way out of a war. But this conflict in Yemen is uh, absolutely devastating to the people of Yemen. Saudi's waging a
1: very brutal war against these people. Sure, and- it's it's a proxy war, uh, as is Syria, as, uh, ostensibly. Yes. Not a civil war, it's a, it's a proxy war. But I, I think for me, the best outcome, not just, not for me, who cares about me, for the 80 million uh, Iranians. Uh, would be, uh, and this may be controversial in some quarters, but I would love to see a return to the peacock throne. I think, you know, the, the Shah of Iran, at his worst, was nothing compared uh, to uh, what the mullahs uh, do, that regime over there right now. And uh, and uh, the Shah's son is uh, sitting and waiting in the United States. Um, Iran would be, I think, a, an incredibly pro-Western, uh, nation, uh, where the mullahs to be ever overthrown. That's, it was, yeah, yes, it, it was.
2: was. I'm reading a book by Eve Curé about her time going into Iran in World War II. So she traveled all through the Middle East and into Russia to report on things. And uh, the the Tehran she was in in 19 early 1940 41 is is just they they were like a microcosm. They had Western things, and they also had people who would be more devout. Islam, and they all got along, and uh, there was a great pressure to to uh, bring in some Western ideas, like perhaps in clothing, and people are almost you know unsure of what to do because of, of this change, uh, you know, to go to off-the-rack garments instead of things maybe you, you made with your own hands and such. But it seemed to be a very cosmopolitan uh, environment. The Russians were in there, uh, diplomats from the Free French uh, were in there, and people were negotiating, the Americans, the British, and uh, it just seemed to be a very cosmopolitan city uh, with all kinds of a mix. And uh, so it can happen, it can survive, it can be like that. But uh, by and large, these rigid theocracies are, are just brutal, whether it's political like North Korea or Iran. Uh, you know, if you don't have the ability to, to think and move around at your own discretion, uh, you're basically a prisoner.
1: Let me get uh, a quick take on a number of uh, other items here in the time that remains. Uh, you, t- you, you say that we should brace ourselves for more geo-warfare more fires and storms
2: oh yes indeed they're not going to give up on that the the agenda for uh... the repatriation of whatever they're doing in california is is not going to fall by the wayside it looks Like you know, I I would hazard a guess almost that we're we're having a covert war wage because California was very heavily Democrat, and uh, you know there there was a a large divide. They even wanted to split, and we see a lot of the power centers of big money or big information that uh, really took a beating. And whether that be the international banking islands in the Caribbean with storms, the fires in California, some very high-profile deaths of people, collect, you know, connected with the Clintons or the Clinton Foundation, including a family here in Toronto, yes. the Shermans, the Steinbergs uh, died in a plane crash in Costa Rica. Th- these are uh, forces to be reckoned with. Some things happened, and uh, you know, the cousins uh, chap from Compass Group died in a plane crash in Australia. Uh, these were major high rollers funders uh, for one side of what could potentially be a civil war in the United States, and we're seeing all kinds of bizarre things happening to them that just seem out of proportion in the modern era. That you know, modern equipment's going to break down, or the the way these fires were caused—it was like you know, homes just melted and disappeared, but surrounding area beside some of these homes are intact, so it looked more like it was shot. Many people saw like a blue light coming from the sky uh, and photographed things like that. Put them on YouTube. That there were anomalies that are hard to explain. That uh, something's been going on. And Wildfire I can't see set by anything.
1: satellite. Wildfire set by satellite. Is that the idea?
2: Yes. One of the uh, you know big uh, inventions or something is the little X thirty seven B baby space shuttle yes. that has been in the air many times during uh, earthquakes or uh, you know cataclysmic events. And there's been suspicions that, you know, maybe it's being used for something. But, uh, you know, there's not that many people up there that could actually do something. And that aircraft or spacecraft is actually equipped with a laser. I found that out from restoring one of my old shows, too, that uh, was timely with these California fires and looking at these pictures of the blue light coming from the sky. Is someone doing something? Uh, It's... Highly likely, it just didn't seem to be something that would, by accident, just or you know, natural circumstances come into play.
1: Uh, I want to. I, I neglected to mention uh, North Korea. We we should go back to the uh, the geopolitical stage for a moment. And uh, you say there's a good chance for détente in uh, on the Korean Peninsula.
2: I believe so. They've opened the hotline or telephone communication line between North and South. It's been dormant for a couple of years, and part of it comes from Trump pounding his chest and screaming, I got the button. And, uh,
1: you know, he's the policeman of the world. Well, I think Kim only realizes he's not going to get appeasement like he did with three previous uh, administrations.
2: No, this guy's going to play hardball and it's either, you know, you take him on or you negotiate. And he knows he can't win. And he's probably sane enough to realize maybe we should negotiate and get the best deal we can and call it a day where I can still be dictator of my land and uh, and have a land under me that hasn't been uh, totally destroyed. So we, everybody's going after Trump for that. I see, too, that there's psychiatrists that are trying to—they're they're giving
1: up on the Russian angle now, and they want to question his sanity. Now it's Amendment 25. That's right. Yeah, 100 no. percent, apparently. 100 percent of his family members and 100 percent of his cabinet. Uh, believe that uh, the president is certifiable. Yeah, uh, right. You couldn't get to be in his position,
2: whether you love him or hate him, as a successful businessman, if you were completely unglued and off the wall. And uh, the only persons who can, you know, lay claim to a fortune like that would be through an inheritance, and then they'd blow it away a, in their lifetime, and there'd be nothing left of it. But to to, uh, to be able to do what he's done, in the business world, is you're at the top. There, there's No one can take that away from you. And then to be able to get into this election, going against all the odds where everything's stacked against you, and winning and persevering and actually claiming the presidency, that's just like... Parting the Red Sea, almost.
1: Well, here's the, here's one there. of the problems with that the narrative that they've constructed, and they've they've sort of argued themselves into a corner. Uh, and that and that is, I mean, the, the critics uh, on the one hand they're saying that Trump colluded with the Russians to win the election, and then on the other hand, according to this biography or this um, uh, unauthorized biography that just came out, Trump never wanted to win; it was all a publicity stunt. So, which is it? Did he collude with the Russians because he wanted to win, or did he not want to win? <laughs>
2: Well, we'd probably have to wait for his wife's book about that, but sometimes the cold, icy stare's been in the background to say, look what you got us into. <laughs> <laughs> and then he comes home, and you know, maybe that'll be another book where he's pounded with the frying pan and just say, you know, <laughs> what, what another fine mess you've gotten me into, as he used to say in Laurel and Hardy. What do you mean by a time war? A time war? Well, with these computers that we're developing now, these quantum computers... They have abilities to do things that would just defy. I look at it when I look at the economy, and you just keep seeing this bubble just inflating and inflating and inflating, and all the traditional things just not coming to play, like that we would have corrections or collapses or something like that. We may see a bubble grow that is just beyond any type of expectation. And these computers may also... Quantumly, because when particles are interfered with with quantum mechanics, you have the two-slit experiment. When something's observed, they change direction, and they can be in two places at the same time. And uh, even things we do with your show, uh, you know, we're, we're... observing things that may not be observable to other people and that changes the direction of particles and particles make up everything. So when you change the future, there's a great documentary on my uh, website about uh, the fact that, you know, existence could be a computer program. It's an amazing thing to watch. It gets into a lot of the research from some of the top physicists in uh, California at some of their best universities. So by and large in a nutshell is if you change the future you can change the past time doesn't have to be the way we think about it it's like writing it could be left to right or right to left and uh, time can work in that way too where if we had an effect on something that changed the future it could automatically correct the past, and maybe that's what we see in some people who look at things like the Mandela effect, where
1: yes, I was that, going to mention that. It sounds eerily familiar.
2: Yeah, yes, where you you know you know something. A lot of them were things that were in the Bible or something, and in that uh, that was a common one talked about. And you know they'd say something like, "Well, yeah, I remember that. That's exactly the way I remember it." And then I you know I look at what it says now. And that's not the way it is. So I went on Bible Gateway, because they have like 20, 30 different versions. And I found most of them were affected by the Mandela Effect. And then I found a couple of versions, like the 1599 version or really old uh, things, that were still written in the original way, the way I remembered them.
1: Well, this is sort of the premise of 1984, where you have people going back and, and rewriting rewriting the past uh, in order to uh, line up with the, uh, the narrative. Listen, we, um, we have to run. Speaking of a time war, I'm up against the clock here. George, I want to thank you so much. I really enjoyed this last hour. Can't believe it's gone so quickly.
2: Uh, Well, bless you, my friend. And the time we change, maybe in a way we're time cops. And uh, that's one of my friends uh, coined that phrase a long time ago. And if we do change it, we're trying to change it for the better, to make it an equitable world for everyone. And uh, if we achieve that, then I think the good Lord's going to look down on us and say a job well done.
1: Job well done to you, sir. Happy New Year again. George Floyd. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley on Curses. Stay with us.
0: We're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio.
1: Thanks for inviting me into your home, long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zuma Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. All of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, about 40 stations now, if you can believe it. And you can find a list of affiliates at strangeplanet.ca in the radio section. Hello to all of you who listen in via the Conspiracy Show podcast. And that's all over the place. Conspiracy Show podcast. Don't forget the new podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, which drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And those who catch us on the YouTube channel, uh, don't forget to subscribe. And the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both fantastic uh, apps, both free downloads. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, is here. She joins us once a month to discuss all things paranormal, and we're going to get into curses for the first half of the hour. Not only cursed objects, but also intergenerational family curses like the Kennedys. Uh, Then in the second half, our paranormal news roundup, Rosemary is one of the world's preeminent paranormal investigators and the author of about 70 books, many of which are encyclopedic works on angels and the saints, werewolves and vampires and ghosts, etc. I always look forward to her dropping by. Hi, Rosemary. How are you?
3: Well, doing well, Richard. Uh, Gearing up for the year. And uh, I think it's going to be an exciting year. I've got uh, lots of things planned, new books, a lot of events, a lot of travel coming up.
1: You just never stop. How many books do you have in the pipeline right now? Be honest. Three? Four?
3: (laughs) Uh, I've got four. Ha ha! Nailed it! And uh, they'll probably all make it out this year, too. And then uh, I also have books by other people coming out uh, because I publish other authors' works now through my um, Visionary Living Publishing.
1: Yes, VisionaryLiving.com. Your your, uh, output is just remarkable. You are so prolific. How do you do it? Where do you get the energy?
3: Uh, Well, I've always had good concentration and focus. And uh, for reasons that I can't explain, and I'm not even sure I want to explain because you never want to lose the magic, is that how I write it is usually how it's published. I do very little revision. That's how it falls into my head. And so I do a lot of research and um, mental organizing of material, and uh, then I start writing, and uh, like I said, I I don't have to do much on the revision end, so uh, that has enabled me to to have a very prolific output through uh, my career.
1: And it's such a rich vein to be mined, this whole paranormal uh, metaphysical field, Uh, there's just never any shortage of things to write about, obviously.
3: It just never stops, Uh, and that's one thing that I like about it. There's always a new mystery to be explored or more to be known uh, about some other area. And because I work in a lot of different fields, you know, I I, um, do the paranormal, metaphysics, cryptids, UFOs. Mm Uh, mysterious unexplained phenomena, it gives me uh, a wide range of material to go into. So I- I'm constantly engaged in something new and exciting.
1: Well, here's a topic I know that you've written extensively about, and uh, you're definitely sort of the go-to uh, individuals uh, to talk about curses. And uh, the reason I bring this up, I was recently reading online about this. Uh, it was a dynasty in, um, in India, uh, going back, I won't get into the details now, but uh, it, it, going back into like the 9th, uh, sorry, the 1600s. And uh, this dynasty, one generation after the next, it was just one curse after another. And um, when we're talking about curses, I mean, we talk often about cursed objects and cursed people. But is it possible uh, for a family... Uh, to be cursed, so that it just carries on one generation after the next,
3: yes, it certainly is, and we have seen that throughout history, and we have a very very modern example in the Kennedy family here in America, sure, and uh, you could say that it 's the old biblical curse, uh, the sins of the father being visited on on the son, so to speak, that uh, if uh, there have been bad actions, uh, misuse of power uh, by someone in a, a powerful family uh, that can bring a curse on a bloodline. And uh, especially if uh, some of the same power games are, are played by uh, subsequent generations.
1: And uh, certainly, yeah, the, I mean, the uh, the Kennedy curse, I, I don't know where we would begin. I guess maybe with the eldest brother, Joe, uh, that was killed uh, in a plane crash during the Second World War. And then I believe there was a... Um, Uh, a sister who died as well. I mean, and then, of course, John and Ted and Robert and on and on it goes. And and then in the uh, second, even the third generation uh, now.
3: Yes, and it all revolves around power, Uh, the greed for power and the manipulation of it. And uh, the curious thing is, however, uh, why do some people manage to get away with this and others not? It might have to do with uh, guilt that builds up in, um, in individuals and uh, is sort of spiritually carried from one generation to, uh, to another. And then sometimes I think there are examples set, too, that uh, by seeing these sorts of things play out, we're all given lessons in uh, the consequences of um, the wrong use of power and money.
1: Are you someone who subscribes to the idea of uh, uh, karma?
3: Yes, because I believe in reincarnation, and uh, I do believe that lifetimes are compensatory, that um, we are rewarded for the good things we do, and we have to compensate for uh, the bad things that we do, and that uh, this serves as as an explanation for why bad things happen to some people.
1: So if you, in a previous life, there's also the idea, I understand in reincarnation that, you know, you choose the circumstances of your next incarnation because you want to sort of slowly increase your vibration and and your consciousness each, each lifetime that you have. And so that it's possible that some people actually choose these lives that end tragically because I guess that's just another lesson they need to learn uh... sort of on their road to you know getting off this hindu wheel of life so is it is it possible then for example that jack kennedy and robert kennedy uh... and eldest brother joe and their sister kathleen she also died in a a plane crash they chose these these lives that would end tragically
3: on a soul level perhaps so and that's a very popular explanation in uh, some metaphysical circles that we do make those choices that uh, when we go into the afterlife, uh, we have a chance to review our lives and make an assessment. There's no big eternal judgment, but we pass judgment on our own lives. And uh, we come to an understanding that in order to advance spiritually and, and better ourselves, uh, we we have to do something to, to pay for what we've done. And... Uh, Souls who, who uh, wish to advance more quickly will make choices then to get those payments out of the way. Uh, otherwise, you can become locked in very long cycles of um, having things visited upon you.
1: Another possible explanation for the Kennedys... Uh, I'm not sure how you feel about this one, is that occasionally, you know, a cursed item will find its way into the possession of a family, and we can get into the Hope Diamond, uh, and it's nearly dozen victims. But I'm wondering, do you think it's possible, I don't know if anyone has ever investigated this, is it possible that the Kennedys somehow came into possession of a cursed item?
3: It's possible. We don't have any evidence that that's the case. But uh, when, whenever people have something, especially powerful people, if they have something unusual like a piece of uh, jewelry uh, or a prized possession, and then something tragic happens to them, uh, we make, uh, and this is a natural human reaction, there is an immediate association of tragedy and misfortune um, with certain objects. Uh, let's say, for example, hypothetically, that maybe the patriarch. Uh, of the family, uh, Joseph Kennedy, had um, a ring that he wore all the time, and uh, this was one of his personal marks of power. And then uh, tragedy starts happening, well that ring could take on the association of, uh, of misfortune because it's part of his energy and then it becomes part of the energy and the misfortune as well. This is um, often believed to be the case with jewelry items, like the Hope Diamond. In the case of the Kennedys, we don't have any real evidence of a cursed object, but we have other examples throughout history. And, uh, of course, John Zappas and I have done a couple of books on haunted objects, many of them cursed, yes. del- some deliberately by people, and and some through misfortune. Uh, with the Hope Diamond, um, There is a long history of of people who've owned it, who have had bad things happen to them.
1: The original, um, if I'm remembering the story correctly, didn't it all begin when the original Hope Diamond was stolen from a Hindu statue by the first owner?
3: Well, that's um, that's a legend, and ah. nobody nobody really knows exactly how true that is. It sounds like an Indiana Jones Temple of Doom kind of story. <laughs> Indeed, but, it does. Uh, the diamond was originally quite large; it was over 115 carats. It was called the Tavernier Blue because uh, a man named John Baptiste Tavernier supposedly plucked it out of uh, a temple idol um, in India, and the diamond did come out of India, but. Um, in the 1600s, then, it winds up um, in France and um, into the possession of King Louis XIV. And it is from there that um, uh, the misfortune goes. Now, uh, Jean-Baptiste Tavernier um, um, died in, in a very unpleasant way. He had a, a, after he stole the diamond, he came down with a fever, and then it was said, according to lore, that his body was ravaged by wild dogs or wolves.
1: That's how I want to go.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? But then there are other reports that he really lived until he was 84 years old. But, you know, it makes for a good story. But, hmm. you know, some of this he just can't dismiss because... Um, so um, the king uh, gets it, King Louis 14th, He has it cut down in size. And... Um, he wore it. Uh, it was called the French Blue, and, and the diamond has a blue color. And um, Louis 14th didn't die pleasantly either. He died of gangrene. Yikes. Um, some of that you can say, well, back in those days, these are the sorts of things that happened to people. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, uh, all of his... Um, children, at least his legitimate children, died in childhood. So there's this aura of tragedy that then um, starts building up, and people around the king um, had uh, very unfortunate deaths as well. So, of course, the the diamond then is uh, passed on down the royal line, and guess who gets it? Louis XVI and his wife Marie Antoinette, Mm -hmm. and we know what happened to that. Oh, that ended well. Oh, yes. Uh, beheaded in the French Revolution. And um, so it passes through Do a we lot no, of Sorry, let
1: me, let, let me just um, interject for one moment. Do we have, uh, are there any paintings that show Marie Antoinette wearing the, the gem? I mean, there, she was painted. There were many paintings of her. Have you ever seen a painting of her wearing the, the blue diamond?
3: You know, I have not. Uh, and, but I, that's something that I haven't specifically researched either. But uh, while more recent owners of the diamond have been um, photographed and painted wearing the gem, I'm not aware of one with her.
0: All right.
1: Listen, we're going to take a time out when we come back. Um, oh, here's an, an additional one. Marie, Marie Antoinette's one of, hers, one of her, uh, I guess, uh, her entourage or a member of her court, apparently wore the diamond on special occasions, and uh, she was attacked by a mob in a horrible fashion. She was hit with a hammer, decapitated, stripped, and disemboweled, among other things. (laughs) That's not bad enough. And then her head was impaled on a pike and carried to Marie Antoinette's prison window, uh, all for wearing the the blue diamond, perhaps. We'll uh, pick this up on the other side. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with
0: us. Do you want the truth? You can handle the truth, the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zuma Radio, the new AM 740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you to the Conspiracy Show. With Richard Sarret from Zoomer Radio,
1: we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. We're talking curses, and um, where did we leave off? We had uh, Louis the uh, Fourteenth. He, he died of gangrene. He had the uh, the Hope Diamond. Uh, all of his children, I think, save for one, uh, died in childhood. It uh, gets passed down to uh, Louis the um, the Sixteenth, uh, and of course uh, Marie Antoinette. Uh, she had a rather um, Uh, tragic end, beheaded, of course. A member of her court, her closest confidant, was killed. She wore the the diamond on occasion. Then where does the diamond go from there, Rosemary?
3: Well, it goes to a a Dutch jeweler by the name of Wilhelm Falls. Now, he had the diamond uh, recut again. And, by the way, in its present uh, state, it is a little over 45 carats. So it's down considerably from its original 115 carats.
1: Why did they keep cutting it down? Do they think they would, they would reduce the, the curse if they did that? Or? Uh,
3: it was usually a way of trying to enhance the brilliance of the diamond. Huh. Uh, over time, uh, different techniques have been developed for faceting uh, stones in order to have um, more brilliance um, show, and that was probably uh, one of the reasons. It could be that in its uh, original 115-carat form, it was rather crudely cut, And um, by reducing it in size and changing the faceting, uh, it would be uh, a more impressive stone.
1: Maybe by cutting it each time, they just enraged the Hindu gods further.
3: Well, it could be, because um, some things are not meant to be altered. And if that story was true, uh, that the diamond had once been in an idol in a sacred temple, um, altering it uh, stealing it in the first place, and then altering it, uh, would bring about uh, the rage of the gods, so to speak.
1: Okay, so what happened to Wilhelm Falls, the Dutch jeweler?
3: Well, um, his son murdered him and then killed himself.
1: Ah, of course.
3: Uh, and uh, here again, you know, you could make the argument in any individual case that, uh, well, you know, tragedies happen, but when it all, all these things stack up around a single piece of jewelry, it starts to get very interesting. So then a Greek merchant... Uh, got it, and uh, he winds up driving his car over a cliff and killing himself, his wife, and uh, his child. Oh, my. Now, in more recent times, then, it came into the possession of an heiress named Evelyn Walsh McLean, and she owned the Washington Post. Um, And she loved the diamond, and she wore it, she put it on her dog and let him run around in it. Uh, and then mysteriously deaths start happening around her mother-in-law or son. Her husband leaves her for another woman uh, and then dies in a mental ward. Uh, she piles up debt, has to sell the newspaper. Uh, her daughter dies of a drug overdose. Um, it's just one thing after another. So uh, her heirs then sold the diamond to a, f- a very famous jeweler named Harry
1: Winston. Then it became the Winston diamond.
3: It did. And um, we you you don't na- exactly know. Sorry, that- I just
1: wanted to... How did you get the name Hope Diamond? Because it was the blue diamond. It was the French blue. When did it become known as the Hope Diamond? Do we know?
3: I'm not really sure about that. Um, and uh, whether or not there was a legend of uh, some sort of... Um, oh, Hope hope concerning something around the diamond, or hope for a better future. Um, Or I
1: hope I get rid of this thing before it kills me.
3: Exactly. That could be part of it, too. So now it's the
1: Winston diamond, and it's Well, we don't
3: really know what happened to him. If anything bad happened, he was rather quiet about it. But all of a sudden, he didn't want it anymore, and so he donated it to the Smithsonian.
1: Yeah, he mailed it to them, like, for, I don't know, $2.40 or something. Obviously, he didn't think very much of it.
3: It's almost like, I can't get this, uh, you know, out of my possession fast enough. Maybe,
1: yeah, maybe he, re- he looked into the history and said, "Oh no, thank you. So he ships it off to the Smithsonian for $2.44.
3: Well, interestingly, in, um, in Eastern lore, uh, one way to get rid of a curse on an item is to give it away. You can't sell it. You have to give it away. Right. Hmm. And so now it's in the possession of the United States. Where uh, some people have said, "Well, uh, are some of the bad things that have happened to this country uh, recently can they be blamed on the Hope Diamond?"
1: Interesting. Well, even the 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 guy apparently that um, when when Harry Winston mailed it, the mailman who delivered the diamond to the Smithsonian uh, had his leg crushed in an accident shortly thereafter,
3: and his house burned down.
1: Oh, yes. Jeez, my word.
3: So, y- yes, it's not just the principal people involved with these cursed objects, but sometimes the people around them. It's as though some sort of baleful energy extends out into their lives and environment and affects other people as well. And and some of these people are, you could say, they're innocent victims. Uh, you know, they, they're just in proximity of someone or handling something in some way on a temporary basis, and uh, the, the malevolent um, uh, energy associated with the object affects them as well.
1: So now it, is it still at the Smithsonian?
3: Yes, it is. And um, I've never seen it. I've never gone to the Smithsonian to see it, but it attracts many visitors every year. And it, it's likely to stay there.
1: All right. Um Why don't we uh, spend a few moments talking about another famous cursed item. Uh, This one is uh, very intriguing, of course. I'm talking about James Dean's Porsche 550 Spyder. Uh, The car he was in when it crashed, uh, he was killed in 1955. And um, uh, that car would kill and kill again.
3: A very strange case, and uh, James Dean and um, a mechanic uh, he knew were en route to a car race in Salinas, California, and uh, Dean liked to drive fast. It was a Porsche a Spider, and um, he had a head-on collision uh, in which he was killed. The mechanic was injured, and uh, the driver of the other car uh, just received minor cuts. But the car passed into possession of a mechanic that... Um, Dean had known, uh, George Barris, and immediately bad things started happening. Um, uh, In handling the wreckage, um, it it would, like, fall on people and crush limbs and damage property. And so the first thing that happened is um, the car fell and unloading it, Um, it fell onto a mechanic and crushed his leg. Um, Parts, Barris sold parts of Eddie kept the body, but he sold spare parts, and people who bought the spare parts had problems. There were two doctors uh, who bought parts, and uh, their cars went out of control um, and uh, had mysterious accidents. Um, it was put on display and taken around the country, and every time it was transported or handled, something bad would happen. Usually, something would fall on people and injure them. Uh, 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 something with the loading or unloading of the car or the way it was displayed. People were injured all the
1: time. Well, it couldn't couldn't have uh, helped the fact that, uh, I'm not sure who named it, Uh, they called the car the Little Bastard, and didn't uh, James Dean have that sort of plastered uh, decals, the Little Bastard plastered all over the car?
3: Uh, Well, yes, and uh, so you, you could almost say that Dean sort of cursed the car himself um by, by giving it that name, driving it too fast, um, objects can become cursed by the energy we put into them. And so it wasn't just the accident itself, but it might have been uh, some of Dean's own energy that w- went into it that uh, affected that.
1: Interesting. So, uh, so, so that, it, that it became haunted, in effect? I mean, what's the difference between a haunted object and a cursed object?
3: Uh, well, uh, cursed objects are haunted objects. They're they're haunted by the energy of, of a curse, and that whoever owns and handles the object, bad things happen to them. And um, uh, just to, to finish up the history with a little bastard, uh, so many bad things happened that George Barris decided that he would just store the thing. Uh, and uh, he, he uh, finished uh, exhibiting it, um, there were some cases of uh, other autos uh, that were involved in the same exhibits, mysteriously burst into flames and were destroyed. Um, the, the car was put on display in schools as an example of um, what happens when you don't drive safely. and Students were injured in various accidents. Finally, on, on the last uh, exhibit, it goes to Miami, Florida, And then it is packed up for the return to Barris's place in Los Angeles. And somewhere between Florida and L.A., the little bastard goes missing. And it's never been found.
1: Oh, isn't that interesting?
3: Now, interestingly, um, we we can presume it's probably stolen. Um, But several years ago, a man came forward and said he knew where the little bastard was. He said that he was six years old. And he remembered his father and some other men acquiring this car and sealing it up behind a wall in Whatcom County, Washington. But he wouldn't tell anybody where it was or any more information. He wanted money. Mm. And the case ended there.
1: Oh, wow. I think there's another book there, Rosemary. <laughs> like you need another project. <laughs> now,
3: well, you could, you could write a book just literally on this one case. So many things happened. And they were all the same types of accidents, too. And, and um, this is often what we, we find with cursed objects. I mean, with some of them, it's money trouble. People run into financial ruin. With other people, it's, um, th- their health goes Uh, and deteriorates, or or they fall into alcoholism, or their relationships ruined. And uh, with other objects, it seems to be horrible accidents and death. And and that was the case with The Little Bastard. There were a lot of violent, damaging accidents.
1: I don't know if this is apocryphal or not. Do you know the story of of Alec Guinness, actor Alec Guinness, who played, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi and was in the... uh, um, What was that other great movie he made about the... uh, Uh, the prison camp in Burma, a bridge over the River Kwai. Uh, And his connection to James Dean, again, I don't know if this is a true story, uh, but supposedly James Dean met Alec Guinness outside of a restaurant. I guess they were friends at the time. And he had him take a look at his new car. James Dean was very happy with his new car. He says, Alec, what do you think of my new spider? And Guinness, again, not sure if this is true. The legend has it that he told James Dean the car had a sinister appearance, and then he told him, quote, if you get in that car, you'll be found dead in it by the time this time next week. And sure enough, seven days later, Dean was killed. Have you heard that? Is, do you know if I that's haven't true? Heard,
3: I, uh, it, it, it could very well be true. I haven't heard that particular story, but there are similar stories about other people who felt very uneasy around that vehicle. For example, George Barris, who acquired mm-hmm. the wreck. Um, said that he he felt that the car gave off a very bad energy and it made him uneasy. And he told Dean uh, that he should get rid of it. Uh, but, of course, Dean just disregarded that. And uh, other friends uh, told James Dean the same thing. And um, Dean is said to have just kind of shrugged it all off by saying, well, he knew he was destined to die in a speeding car. Uh, So, uh, I don't know if that's true, but is is that a a sense of self-fulfilling prophecy? He acquires a car, um, imbues it with a bad energy by naming it the Little Bastard, and if he has a sense of of predestination, that he's going to die in some car wreck, that energy then becomes part of the car as well.
1: We have just about a minute here before the break. If someone has... Taken possession of something. Maybe it's a piece of costume jewelry. Maybe they've inherited something. You and I years ago we talked about a, a masonic apron uh, here in in the Toronto area that someone inherited, uh, and then all of these uh, sudden these horrible things start to happen. If you suspect the object is cursed, just in a, in, a, in ten seconds or so, what do you do?
3: Well, first of all, you get it out of your house. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, usually the, these things will create environmental disturbances, you know, haunting phenomena and nightmares and things like that. Uh, objects can be cleansed. Uh, they can be cleansed in sunlight and salt and also through prayers and in, and invoking spiritual help. Uh, sometimes people get rid of them by um, burying them, throwing them into deep water, taking them to the dump, um, something that, that starts to break up the energy.
1: All right, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and we'll do a little paranormal rant, roundup, some great stories in the news. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us right here on The Conspiracy Show.
0: Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Do yourself a favor.
1: Get on up to her website, VisionaryLiving.com, and check out uh, her online store, uh, which has... I guess, I'm guessing, about 70 books now in total, many of the major encyclopedic works. Uh, And, uh, I mean, you could really stock up your library. If you're into the paranormal and uh, the metaphysical, it's all right there. Uh, How many books is it, actually, Rosemary?
3: Um, I think I'm up to 67 now. And I have a new one coming out in just a few weeks. Maybe we'll talk about it next month on a future show. It's called The Road to Strange. UFOs, aliens, and high strangeness.
1: Excellent. All right. It's a date. Uh, I want to talk about this, uh, this case uh, that uh, it sounds for all the world. Uh, this took place in England like a case of spontaneous human combustion. What, what, what do you make of this? This man who died after he burst into flames on a street in Hull, England.
3: Well, it certainly sounds like a possible case of um, human spontaneous combustion. Um, flames were seen in, uh, um, uh, coming uh, out of uh, um, residence, and um, emergency help was summoned. This just happened um, recently, uh, last year. And uh, a man was literally on fire, and uh, emergency services arrived, Uh, He was very uh, badly burned, and no one knew how he caught fire. Uh, There were no accelerants on his body. didn't appear to be suicide. There was no evidence of a break-in or any kind of struggle. He was so badly burned that he died at the scene. And interestingly, um, this was the second case, because earlier um, a similar emergency had been reported where a man was um, on fire, and uh, had to be uh, rushed to the hospital and um, also died as well. Now, uh, in cases of spontaneous human combustion, by the way, the first documented case we have uh, of this goes back to about the mid-1600s where uh, there was a French account that um, reported a a woman just suddenly went up in ashes and smoke in her bedroom uh, was the description. But in in these spontaneous human combustion, it seems like uh, the body just bursts into flame on its own. And and how could it do that? It would have to be some sort of intense internal heat. Now, there are patterns to the way these bodies burn, and usually the torso burns. It's entirely consumed. But uh, the head, the arms, the hands, the lower legs, and the feet usually don't. Uh, If a body's going to burn... Um, It's a very unusual way to burn, and it it takes a very high temperature to burn human flesh. The fires that affect these cases are contained to around the body. They don't seem to spread to someone's home. Hmm. Now, cases that have been reported in the past, um, the the, um, burned corpses are found after the fact. And it's a puzzle as to how the fire started and why the bodies burned in the manner they did. Um, here we have two cases where at least someone saw, uh, people saw the fires and were able to get medical help there. So we don't know if um, the bodies were in fully engulfed in flames or they would have burned in that manner had uh, emergency crews not been, been able to reach them. It's a mystery that's never been solved.
1: Yeah, I, I remember um, there was an interview or a, a quote from a science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke, and, and he said that the question he gets from, and I don't, I don't know that he wrote about this phenomenon, uh, but he said he, gets at, he got asked more about spontaneous human combustion than any other, any other topic uh, which I thought was kind of odd, from you know, from a science fiction writer. I don't know that he, that he wrote about it, but this was something obviously that uh, that people wanted to know about from him.
3: And it, it touches on our deepest uh, fears. Uh, uh, death by fire is one of the most horrible ways to die, mm. and uh, the idea that a body can spontaneously burst into flames for no reason uh, could uh, be. I mean, it's certainly a curiosity to some people, but it, it also is deeply troubling at a uh, very primal fear level. Uh, nobody knows why these things happen. There, there ha- haven't been uh, any obvious cases of strange diseases or uh, dietary things. Some people say, well, it's uh, the consequence of some sort of sin. Uh, this is the punishment for it. Um, that's pure speculation. Uh, but the fact of the matter is these, these cases have occurred all over the world, um, probably longer than uh, the 1600s. It's just that that's when we
1: have the first documented report. Right. And sometimes, I, I was reading, that the internal organs are left untouched, even though the entire abdomen goes up in flame. The internal organs are left untouched. How strange is that?
3: Well, it's it's very odd. Uh, and uh, sometimes, sometimes the... Uh, like the head might be charred a little, but um, not badly burned either. And it makes no no sense that, um, especially if a torso is going to be completely consumed uh, by fire, you would think that the organs would certainly be destroyed as well, and why some of them would remain intact um no one has an answer for
1: it. Hmm. Um, Just about uh, out, out of time here, heading into a break, and we'll, we'll pick up some other stories, but has anyone ever survived spontaneous human combustion? Do we know? Uh, I haven't, I haven't I, heard of many cases. Uh,
3: I'm not sure about that. Um, I believe there have been one or two cases where um, the combustion started and then was extinguished, but I don't have the details on that.
1: All right, We'll uh, take a time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about a woman who claims she's had sex with ghosts and a near-death experience, but not the typical one. This person had a vision of hell, where he feels all the bad things he did to others uh, were being replayed. Back with more of my conversation with paranormal researcher, investigator, author Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Stay with us.
0: Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Providing the evidence and letting you Draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. We are back
1: with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Again, the website VisionaryLiving.com. She joins us once a month to discuss all things uh, paranormal. Uh, I'm reading about these uh, stories more and more often, uh, and that is uh, people who claim that they are having a sexual relations with ghosts. Uh, is that even possible, Rosemary? Well,
3: it's called spectrophilia, and yes, it is possible. Uh, we have throughout history um, many reports of sexual intercourse with spirits, including the dead and demonic entities like the incubus and succubus and, and other known, uh, unknown uh, spirits. And this has continued in, into modern times, as more people have come forward with, with cases uh, I think that's encouraged others to talk about it as well. But I've interviewed many people who've, for example, uh, stayed in a haunted hotel room or moved into a haunted place, and there was something resident there that uh, started sexually pestering them at night. Uh, now, for many people, this is a terrifying experience, very unpleasant and something that they want to repel. But some people find it very pleasurable, even more pleasurable than human sex.
1: Well, that's apparently what has happened to this amethyst realm, quite an interesting name. This is a 27-year-old spiritual guidance counselor. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, I think of a guidance counselor as someone in high school who tells you what kind of a career you should have, so I don't know if she's advising ghosts on on a future uh, career. Uh, However, She uh, believes that she's been having uh, sex with at least 20 ghosts, and as you say, she now prefers them to real life men. Uh, I don't know, how is it possible that a physical being, flesh and bone and blood, uh, could have relations of any kind with something that is spirit, non physical?
3: The sensations of it get to be quite physical. And uh, I've encountered this with people I've interviewed and in um, some of the cases that I've researched in the literature, that um, in a typical scenario, a person is in bed and they feel uh, something get into bed with them or climb on top of them. Uh, They're likely not to see anything, but they feel it. Sometimes they do see it. In the cases where unpleasant entities are involved, there may be horrific visions of something. But uh, something uh, gets into bed with them and then starts acting like uh, a human attempting to uh, have a sexual encounter would act. They feel uh, physical touching that's very arousing. Um, for, uh, a woman, they, they feel, uh, penetration. Uh, for a man, they, um, they, uh, get aroused and are able to, uh, to have an ejaculation. And it, it's all very real. It's physical. People actually feel it. And, um, in the case of this young woman, um, she evidently thought that the ghosts were doing a better job than real men. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, she was married. Uh, who knows what happened to her husband? I guess uh, she wasn't real pleased with
1: him. Apparently, she he said, caught them. Uh, caught them, but he saw. He reported seeing a shadow through a bedroom window, and I like, caught them in the act. But when he came in to the, I guess it was obviously there was no one there. Uh, but she continued, carried on with this person for years. How do we know it's a? It's. I mean, would this entity be um, the spirit of a uh, a departed human being, or could it be a lower order, like an entity of uh, demonic? How can we be sure?
3: Uh, we can't, really, and there's a great blurring of the line there between the human dead and, and spirits, and this, spirits are very capable of mimicking humans, and uh, a low-level spirit who wanted to have this kind of interaction with the human could uh, pretend to be uh, the ghost of a dead person to make the experience more palatable. There are all ca- also cases of uh, people who are in deep grief over the loss of a spouse or a partner, Uh, And they have these experiences as well. So are they inviting these experiences? Is it part of a a psychological condition that then becomes projected in a way? All of these things are possible. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that uh, people, both men and women, have these kinds of sexual encounters with spirits all the time.
1: Now this uh, woman, uh, Amethyst Realm, uh, who again believes that she's had Uh, a series of 20 sexual partners that were ghosts. Uh, She says she wants to get pregnant with a ghost baby.
3: Well, good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, in in earlier times, and uh, especially uh, like during the Inquisition, where um, people were reporting uh, witches sending demons to have sex with them, um, there were accounts that some sort of spirit baby would be possible Uh, And the uh, theologians who were inquisitors actually came up with very bizarre uh, theories to support this idea. And, uh, for example, um, uh, they could only do it through collecting human semen and then using that semen to implant in a woman, and that would create this kind of weird demon spirit baby. Uh, but um, i don 't think anyone 's ever actually had a ghost baby. Uh, we do have people who have contact with aliens, sexual contact with aliens who say they've ha- they 've had uh, you know children with them
1: right i 'm wondering if that's might what might be behind this uh, phenomenon and particularly with with this um, a- amethyst realm. is it possible she's she's actually carrying on with a an extraterrestrial or some sort of interdimensional of being, and and not spirit at all.
3: My own theory on this, uh, based on her descriptions and uh, similar cases, is that these are masquerades. That what she thinks is uh, a ghost, uh, which would be a dead person, uh, is actually something else. And um, many extraterrestrials are described as shapeshifters, and so this would be entirely plausible within these kinds of scenarios.
1: All right. I want to talk about um, uh, this near-death experience, but this one uh, is not the typical near-death experience. We often hear about people who, uh, who maybe they die on the operating table or s- they die suddenly. They Their body leaves, their soul body leaves their body. Uh, then they see, of course, the uh, the light. They walk towards the light. They are welcomed by... You know the, the the spirit of of relatives that have passed on. They feel this. Uh, we often hear about uh, the, the description of incredible um, unconditional love. They don't want to go back into the body and so forth. This one um, entirely different. This person got a glimpse of the cellar hell.
3: It's. Uh, actually a more common experience than people would like to believe. When um, descriptions of near-death experiences start coming out, uh, and Dr. Raymond Moody uh, really brought this to the fore in the 1970s with um, uh, his research on it from uh, patients that he interviewed, uh, it was very comforting to hear about these uh, celestial journeys through tunnels of light and reunions with dead loved ones and uh, sort of see the pearly gates and then come back and uh, be, be able to have your life transformed. But what was always there as an undercurrent, which then uh, took a while to come out, were the people whose experiences were quite the opposite. They saw hell instead. Right. And uh, what, what happened to this one um, man who had a near-death experience when he was 19 uh, was very much like that, that... Um, uh, he said that uh, he was um, in a place of uh, that was very foul. He was taken by a being to this foul smelling field. People had animal jackal faces. there were demonic creatures who put people in cubes and He was told that everybody had their own customized personal hell um, and uh, that they suffered greatly and and uh, so he experiences all of these horrors of hell, which are straight out of the um, um, the chapbooks of the, the theologians of centuries ago, um, the, the pit of hell and the punishment that await would await you if you lived a, a life of sin. So, why did he have such a negative experience? Well, in in other documented cases, um, some of it uh, can be attributed literally to guilt guilt over uh, people who uh, have these experiences, who have guilt over things that they've done in life, may have a deep-seated fear um, that they might go to a bad place in the afterlife. And so this journey becomes an expression of that. Here was a guy who um, described himself as an alcoholic drug dealer and a thug, and um
1: he also tried to take his own life. That's what he, precipitated the near the out of body experience. He took, he, did, he swallowed yes, up was, sleeping pills.
3: It was an attempted suicide, and um, his uh, mother realized what he had done. He was nineteen years old, and uh, had him rushed to the hospital. And um, of course, um, you know, in Christianity at least, uh, it's taught that suicide is is one of the worst sins you can commit, and that it will put you in a bad place in the afterlife. So. There are a lot of um, collective conditioning things going on. He's led a bad life. He attempts to commit suicide. And then what he experiences is this hell, uh, that's retribution for that. So uh, he has the opportunity to come back. Um, he, he's able to save himself in this experience by asking for salvation. And um, he's finally uh, told by another being, that he actually um, begged to be born into this particular life, and uh, he even chose uh, uh, who his parents uh, were going to be and that he had something yet that he had to do and he had to go back. And he was able to, um, to transform his life as a result. Um, he was in a coma for a while, and uh, he went through a long recovery, um, but uh, now he runs a nonprofit organization uh, to prevent suicide.
1: Well, this this near-death experience that ended with a, a vision of hell uh, may and may have ended up saving his life ultimately.
3: Uh, quite possibly so. But um, it's it's very unsettling to many people to think that uh, going to the afterlife could be um, a bad trip, and uh, we're we're taught. A very conservative re- uh, view in religion that uh, you will be judged, and if you have committed bad deeds, then you're going to be punished for that. Uh, most people have some skeletons in their closet that I think they worry about through life and um, uh, whether or not they're going to have to compensate for that in the afterlife. But one, one of the outstanding things about the near-death experience is that uh, there doesn't seem to be a, a final judgment. Uh, there isn't um, a being standing there saying uh, you are condemned to eternal hell uh, or rewarded to eternal heaven, that there is some sort of chance for redemption. And um, I think that people who have committed heinous acts in life do go to hells, and that they are customized hells, they are customized to the acts and the psyche of the in, and fears of the individual. And that's about the worst hell you can have.
1: Indeed. Rosemary, always a pleasure. Uh, look forward to the, um, the the Road to Strange book about UFOs, and we'll, we'll get you back on to discuss that. And again, the website, VisionaryLiving.com. All the best in 2018 to you and Joe.
3: And same to you, Richard. Always a pleasure.
1: Indeed, a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. All right, back next week with a brand new show. My thanks to Ian Robertson. And uh, until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite